0: we're now going to read a very short passage from God's word we're going to read in revelation chapter 6 verses 9 to 11 you'll find it on page 1238 of the bibles at the back of the seats in front of you uh, and i think also will appear on the screen behind me so that's revelation chapter 6 verses 9 to 11 When he, the Lamb, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy and inspired word. Father, we now would ask that you would bless Doug as he comes to Bring your word to us. We ask that even now you would grant him your peace. Grant him an assurance that the word he has for us is your word and not his. And we ask for your blessing and for your glory to be apparent to all who are in this place from now. For Jesus' sake. Amen. We're now going to sing O to see the dawn of the darkest day
1: It's a great joy to be with you this Sunday evening. Murdo was saying he'd learned a particular hymn here 30-some years ago, and I was thinking I was first in Holyrood in my early 20s. Now I'm in my late 60s. I never thought I'd be this old, but someone said it's far better than the alternative in one sense. But all these 40-some years, Holyrood has been a, one of our spiritual homes, and what a blessed life I've had in so many ways. And a good bit of it goes to the prayers of this loving fellowship. So I can never thank the people of God in Holyrood enough. Many of those who prayed are now face to face with the Lamb, and soon we shall all be. But I express much gratitude and also I've just been very encouraged on this last trip back to see how God is blessing Holyrood and using it, prospering the ministry, and continuing to reach out. So I say with a hymn, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Now, I have felt led to deal with a very solemn passage tonight that Murdo read to us. Revelation 6, 9 to 11, <clears throat> and it is about the prayers of the martyrs who are now near the throne of God in heaven, praying for the church on earth. It will not be hard for you to figure why I would choose such a subject the beginning of a new year. We know that in the 20th century, there were more martyrs for the Lord Jesus Christ in that one century than in all the centuries from the time the Lord Jesus was on earth through the 19th. More in the 20th century were killed for the name of Jesus than the 19 put together before that. God is doing something. And the 21st century is not slowing down the tempo of men and women sealing their testimony of faith in Jesus with their blood. I was speaking at a gathering a few weeks ago with Reverend David Torrance, as some of you would know, and he was saying in a conversation that the last statistics for the number of martyrdoms and nobody will ever know for sure, but I suppose these statistics tell us something. Last statistics for a whole year was at the end of 2009. And in that one year alone, approximately 210,000 Christians had been killed for the honor of the Lord. It just. Two Sundays before Christmas, or was it one Sunday? I've forgotten. No, it was one Sunday before Christmas in the ancient city of Alexandria in Egypt. Twenty-one Coptic Christians were killed, blown up, as they were coming out of a preparatory Christmas service. Three weeks before that in Baghdad, one of the ancient churches there had been invaded by terrorists who killed 53 believers that sunday in the in the church in baghdad and i don't remember the exact dates about a month before that a large number were killed at worship in kazakhstan and on And on I could go. We're living in a time in the last 110 years of unprecedented growth of Christianity. We've never seen anything like it. You can't measure what's happening in Christianity by looking at the British Isles and the United States. We, in some ways, are going apostate and cold. Sad to say. Other parts of the world... China, many parts of Africa, South America, other parts of East Asia have seen such an unprecedented burgeoning of belief in the Lord Jesus Christ that nothing we know of has ever compared with it in all the 2,000 years of church history. So we've been living in a time of unprecedented Christian growth in much of the world, And at the very same time, there has been an unprecedented number of Christians laying down their lives for the cause of Christ. And it does seem that those things historically go together. The shedding of the blood of the martyrs, as old Tertullian In North Africa he'd seen many martyrdoms and he said in the early third century the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And I want us to think a little bit at the sort of early part of the new year about what God is doing in allowing so many of his most precious people to lay down their lives for the faith. It's not accidental, it's not meaningless, it's not fortuitous, it has a meaning and God is using it and their lives are not being wasted. We see what lies behind it, at least much of what lies behind it here in the little passage that was read you. Revelation 6, 9 to 11, the opening of the fifth seal. It is the Lamb of God who is able, He and He only, because He shed His blood to redeem humanity, He and He only has the authority to open the seals on the seven-sealed book up in heaven that determines the playing out of world history and the reaching of all the purposes of God in His creation and in His redemptive activities. And the Lamb, one by one, opens the seals uh, in the book in heaven and then specific things happen on earth as the result of His opening those seals. And the fifth seal is opened and when it is opened we are shown... the results of the expansion of Christian faith and putting to death of many believers in various parts of the world, we're shown something of what it means. And we're shown that God is wondrously using the... Lives and deaths and continuing testimony of those who love not their lives unto the death. It's all right to love your life. It makes sense. The Revelation says the true saints love not their lives to the death. In other words, it's something we love better than our life. It is the name of Jesus in all for which that saving name stands. And... Revelation 6, 9 to 11 is showing us that those who love their lives not to the death but love Jesus better are now in the heavenly realm that we cannot see with our physical eyes but we're shown a little bit of it by faith through the revelation of God's Word. We're shown something that's happening to those who are being killed for Jesus and we're shown that... After death, they are exercising a powerful ministry to advance the gospel on earth, little though we can see them. They're talking to God, and God is hearing them. Now, obviously a worldly wise man would say when a Christian has died, or whether by natural causes or been put to death, maybe blown apart as it would be today in 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 many places by a terrorist bomb or in i believe in Baghdad they were shot with rifles in the pews as they were trying to come out into the aisles. Other times in ancient Rome in the Colosseum, many of you have been there. I was noticing just before Christmas, the, interestingly, the Colosseum was covered with snow. And you can go into the Colosseum and you can see the, down under the, as it were, under under the floor, under the turf, Uh, there were uh, these caves, brick-lined caves, and they had people, many times the early Christians, down in the caves, and they would bring them out onto onto the field with the thousands of Romans watching, and then they would turn loose wild animals, lions, tigers, bear, and so forth, to maul and maim and tear apart the Christians in some cases. and Nero's persecution about A.D. 65, he literally would dip the believers in a type of pine oil pitch and then put them on a, a, a stake and set them alight. No doubt he thought he'd gotten rid of The troublesome Christian believers, whether by fire or by animal, as the enemies of the gospel today think they blow them up, they're rid of them, have dispatched them where they can no longer be troublesome. What they don't know is they have dispatched them to the immediate Throne room of power. They have dispatched them to the throne room of God. The Christians have been killed or or a Christian dying of, of, of normal causes. Their personalities are never extinguished, they are not annihilated. That is a false materialistic theory. We're created in the image of God. God is eternal, His image is eternal. When the image of God is in the soul, then the soul is immortal. It cannot be extinguished. Now, the devil would love with all of his heart, if he has one, of all of his motivation, to blot out a Christian. He'd love to do it. He has not that power. Jesus said, fear not them that can kill the body, but after that have no more that they can do. Rather, I say unto you, fear him who can cast both body and soul into hell. That's God the Father Almighty. <clears throat> Don't fear the persecutors. Don't fear the terrorist. as far as being willing to compromise your testimony. There's only one thing they can do. <clears throat> in certain cases, they can arrange for your death. That they can do. Then it stops. They're not able to blot out your existence, your personality, who you are, because that's in the image of God. Indeed, when they kill you, you go immediately into the presence of your heavenly Father and your work there is only beginning. And that's what we're going to be looking at a little bit tonight. We had some people visiting here from North Carolina several weeks ago and <clears throat> I spent a little time with them and the first one of the first things I did was to take them to Greyfire's churchyard and take them to where the Covenanter martyrs are buried, large numbers. <clears throat> and I told them about the testimony of the Scottish martyrs, willingly giving it up for the Lord, they were kept there in a prison and then executed and buried under the ground of that prison. You can still see where they're buried in a, in a mass grave. And one of them said, this prison has been a palace to me <clears throat> for Christ is here. So they did not resent having to pay this supreme price that God, in his providence, called on them to pay. The martyrs are more alive than ever, although we cannot see them. Never make the mistake <clears throat> of thinking that the only thing that's real is what you can see and smell and, and touch. then you would miss out on the fact that material things are made out of energy, E equal MC square and so forth. And, and spiritually speaking, there's tremendous realms of reality that although we do not at this time see it, it gives rise to everything that we do see and feel and even to ourselves. So the death of the body in no sense ever indicates the secession of the existence of the Spirit in us. For it is in the image of God. Now, I want to show you a little description of the departed saints in glory from this text. We're not given in in, in either Old or New Testament, we're not told very much about what it's like for our loved ones who have left here And gone up into the presence of God. We're given. It's very, very sparing in detail. And I do not want to go beyond. What's written in scripture. But I do want to go that far. I think we should go that far. And three things are said. About. The martyrs in glory. And it would be true. Also of all. Christians who have died. In the Lord. First. We're told in verse 9, they are under the altar. That's about as near to the throne of God as one could get, and yet it indicates the mediatorship of the Lamb, that they're there because of the Lamb. It's not their death that gets them into heaven. It is the death of the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world on their behalf that gets them into heaven. They're under the altar in verse 9. Secondly, we are told in uh, the verses, well, verse 11, that they're clothed in the beauty of white robes. They look very beautiful now, no matter how abused and marred were their poor Physical frames. When the powers of evil did them in, they are very beautiful. Then, thirdly, in verses ten and eleven, as they are enjoying this wonderful rest in such an exquisitely beautiful realm, they are talking to God. And God is talking to them. First, the martyrs are very near the Lord. Verse 9 says they're under the altar. That is, they're close to the throne of God. About as close as even a redeemed creature could get. And yet, reminds them and us in all heaven and earth that they are there because of the sacrifice that we read about in Revelation chapter 5 the preceding chapter verse 9 and they sung a new song saying thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and hast made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. They are now helping God reign through their prayers. And they're given this royal priesthood because of what the Lamb did in their place. And let me say this. Jesus will never, under any conditions, ask you or me to do something he didn't do first. He wouldn't think of it. It's not possible. He has redeemed us to God by his blood. He gave us everything. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to those rich, yet for your sakes became poor that you through his poverty might be made rich. Now, if he loved us to that degree and gave us absolutely everything so that we have eternal life and complete redemption and coming resurrection of the body and the joy unspeakable and full of glory. Jesus gave us all that. Now, therefore, he has the moral right to ask us when it is in his providential purposes for our lives that it might come to it that it would be appropriate for us to be willing to shed our blood. He never asked us to be foolish. Some people have courted martyrdom, and that's totally improper. But when it's God's will, he who has loved us so much has every right to say, Beloved son, beloved daughter, and now I'll give you the opportunity to ratify what I have done for you, and somewhat of a similar way, shed your blood to my glory. And it will be, as mine was, fruitful. At least in a secondary, but a very real way. Now they are very near God, these martyrs. The world, the devil's company may have felt very happy when they dispatched the martyrs out of this earthly life. Sometimes just the very presence of a Christian church in a, in a particularly wicked country run by a false religion hurts the consciences of those given over to false religion or evil political systems. just hurts them for Christians to exist. In the vicinity. And they feel, well, if we can get rid of them, either run them off or kill them, we will have made much progress in establishing even more control for our system. What they've done in killing the Christians is precisely accomplished the opposite of what they wanted to do. They haven't blotted out the existence of these believers. They have dispatched them into the presence of the King of kings and the Lord of lords who tenderly loves them and is going to give a response, an appropriate and powerful and mighty and gospel response to how his loved ones We're treated. Truly, Psalm 76, verse 10 says, The wrath of man shall praise thee. And then, secondly, we're told that yes, they're near the altar of God, near the holy throne. These martyred saints who died in the Lord are now clothed in beautiful white robes the destruction of their physical bodies here on earth does not mean that they do not have an absolutely beautiful shape above the white loveliness of their heavenly garments comes from the red blood of Christ shed for their sins as they were for ours, as that altar they are under will eternally remind heaven and earth. The life of those saints flows from Christ's death in their behalf on Calvary, which they appropriated in faith. So passing through the gates of death, however God has it planned, each one of us shall do it even when people's bodies are hacked up in horrendous ways, will not be able to deprive us of an absolutely stunningly beautiful likeness once we pass through the slaughter. Just a split second on the other side of the gates of death. We are given, says this text, Inspired of God. Beautiful white robes once we pass to the other side. It's particularly true of the martyrs, but surely it would be true of all believers in their own way. Maybe the martyrs are more splendid. I, I couldn't say about that. But what happens after the Christians are put to death? or any Christian passes through physical death, is described a little bit in a slightly different way by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the early verses where it says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle be dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. And Paul goes on to say, it's not that we want to be unclothed, but clothed upon. But God, God is a very generous God. And any time you give up something for God, He gives you something back far better. That's His generosity. His fatherly love and kindness. Every sacrifice, I mean, as someone, an old Indian minister used to To say to me, you cannot out-sacrifice the Lord. You cannot out-give the Lord. He sends it back, good measure, pressed down, running over. In your cup. And so, some of the Christians are asked to yield up their lives. This physical body, well, it's all we've got as far as physically speaking, this is it. But when you lay that down in the dust God has something far more splendid with which to replace what you lay down for Him. Something very beautiful. Now Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 is not speaking about the resurrection of the body at the end of time. That will be on the last day in the Trump shall sound, as we were singing from it. Is well with my soul. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. It's coming a day. Every man and woman and child who has ever lived will be raised by the marvelous sound of the trumpet, and and out of the graveyards they shall come. It's taking some of our children up to the Isle of Sky, showing them where they. Ancestors are buried in particular churchyard, Kilmore, and telling them about the different ones. And I was thinking, one day they'll be coming out of the graves of Kilmore and going up to see the Lord, and already they're with him. Now, it's a mystery. The body of the believer remains in the dust or in the waters of the sea or whatever happens when you're burned. I don't know. On the last day when Christ returns they shall all be raised and saved soul shall be reunited with the glorified body. But even before then in, in the intermediate time between the time we die and the time Jesus comes back and nobody knows how long that is. It doesn't matter. He's in charge of it. He'll do it right. In the intermediate time once we lay down our physical body at the call of God. He gives us something beautiful in exchange. John Calvin says in his commentary on 2 Corinthians 5 that it is like what he gives us is like a down payment on the resurrection body. It is a uh, something that expresses who we are, what we're like, and that we could recognize one another. But it will only be completed and finalized, as it were, in the resurrection of the dead on the last day. He gives us something beautiful. And it's spoken of as we're clothed, particularly the martyrs are in view, clothed in beautiful robes of white, you know, the linen, white linen worn by the saints, high priests and so forth, it's a picture of the righteousness of God in a holy life and the splendid presence of the Lord. So evidently the martyrs have on these beautiful robes of white that shine with loveliness, and we'd be absolutely, almost the mind boggles if the Lord pulled back the curtain and let us see what it's like for them. This heavenly dressing up of the martyrs brings to mind an old Southern Carolina bluegrass gospel song. I started it to see if we could sing it, and I thought, well, maybe, maybe later. It was popular in the 1940s and 50s. I often think of it. Very simple, very rural, very sincere, beautiful music. It says this. Beautiful robes of white, beautiful land of light, beautiful home so bright, where there shall come no night. Beautiful crown I'll wear, shining with stars o'er there. Yonder in mansions fair, gather us there. Once you heard the music, you'd certainly want to sing it. Beautiful robes of white its what it's like for them. I'll say this. Now, it is difficult for us to see our loved ones die. I mean, occasionally you come from a family that one was martyred. In most cases, it was death from natural causes, but even that we find it painful to split ranks even for a time and see them go from us. And it's valid to grieve. Jesus wept, even though he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Paul says we sorrow... Legitimate to feel sorrow. Death comes in the family circle. But we do not sorrow as those who have no hope. It's profoundly different with Christian sorrow. And God tells us a little bit that by faith in his word... Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4 for we walk by faith and not by sight. This is one of those times you've got to walk by faith because God doesn't let you see beyond the putting the coffin in the ground. But faith gives it from God's point of view what it's really like. And if we could see how beautifully clothed they are and how near they are to God who is a source of every joy. The God who loves them more than we ever could love them. And told them to come home. We would no doubt miss them but it would be very different because we would just be filled with daily praise that our loved ones are in such a state With the one who loved them and gave himself for them. So they've got on white garments. There's a certain substantiality, even about the shape they have, between the time they got upstairs and the time they'll come back with the Lord to this place. And then, third thing we're told is this they are communicating with the Lord. They are talking to God. It must be very wonderful. The green pastures, the still waters, the crystal sea, the rainbow circle throne, the streets of gold, gates of pearl, sapphire, and every kind of precious jewel in abundance, and most of all, the loving face of God and the nearness of the holy ones who are now above. In that lovely place, it is interesting that the saints are still not taken up with themselves. They're talking to God about something. They're using their privileged access to the Lord in order to pray to Him about a certain situation. As it were, they are before the Supreme Court. And they have the open ear and the sympathetic heart of the judge, the king. And they're using it well. What they're talking to the Lord about is what is going on with the church on this earth. And they're saying here in verse 10, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell? On the earth. What they're saying is, Lord, Lord, bring down the strongholds of Satan. Destroy the evil powers that are seeking to lay waste your church and put the light of the gospel out. Tear down the devices of Satan, make them ineffective. Break apart from the inside false religions that teach hatred of you and of other people. Cause to become ineffective and to cease working evil political systems that are employed against the preaching of the saving Word of God. Lord, Lord, we're near you and we're praying that the blood we shed would be in some way used that you would avenge it and break down wickedness so that the gospel can fly with eagle wings across the face of the nations imparting salvation and joy even to those that did us wrong. We pray they can see this gospel. And now here I you know I'll have to suppose tread on thin ice. I can't know too much but I believe that in the advancement of Christianity as I've said in the 20th century it's advanced more than The 19th centuries before that, even as in the 20th century, more were killed than the 19th centuries put together before it. And I believe one of the reasons for the amazing advancement of Christianity is precisely the increasing tempo of the prayers of the martyrs above that shed their blood for the glory of the Lord and and gave their all that men and women could know who Jesus is. And now they're praying and God is hearing their prayers above and answering it by things that are happening on the earth, breaking down certain wicked systems. Other cases, maybe sending dreams to people in the night to get them ready for the message, all kind of ways. God is working in answer to the prayers (coughs) of the martyrs. And then God tenderly (coughs) answers these saints above. And he says in the (coughs) authorized version, as, as good as any at this point, that they should rest yet for a little Season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled now what what does that mean? God is saying, beloved children of mine I'm paraphrasing how proud I am of you, the way you came here, honoring my son, of course. I hear your prayers. Of course I'm going to answer your prayers. Yes, I am using your prayers to advance the triumphs of the gospel even now. But, here's what God says, but you have to wait a little season. You have to wait a while before I carry out what you're asking to the degree that you're asking it. A little season. God is saying, I alone know the exact times and the seasons. God determines when there will be Holy Spirit revivals, great outpourings of the Holy Spirit. God's in charge of that. God's in charge of when there shall be reformations. God's in charge of when nations would fall. God was in charge when Rome collapsed in the, whatever, the 5th century. God was in charge when USSR more or less broke apart in 1991. God was in charge when unbelieving Jerusalem was broken down by the Romans in A.D. 70. And the prayers of the martyrs have all played a powerful part in that. But the Lord says, I keep in my hands the exact time in which you may be able to see uh, the fruit of your blood and the answer to your specific prayers. I will I will answer your prayers. Yes, I will. But it will be on my schedule, on my clock, on my calendar. And then we're told another thing about the little season, that Samoa... We'll have to go through the experience of martyrdom and go up to the Father's presence before the Lord will do all that He intends in this place at such and such a time and another place at such and such a time and another place where the lot of martyrs and they're upstairs praying and God says, yes, I'll do it, but some more have to join you. Then I'll do it. Colossians one twenty four tells us something closely related to this. The Apostle Paul says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. What is Paul saying? Now only the sufferings of Christ save the soul and renew the universe, purge from sin. Only the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And yet, the Lord has elected to employ the sufferings of the saints, not least of the martyrs, to fill up that which is behind are the afflictions of Christ in the body, in the church. In other words, the sufferings of believers, some way, advance the redemptive cause of Christ, spread the gospel. Somehow this hardened, unbelieving, self-centered, otherwise hell-bound humanity sees the beauty of the suffering of the children of God and their love to the Lord and hearts can be broken open. And they see, oh, 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 God must be real. God must be very wonderful maybe there's something in it for me in other words as i take it a definite number of saints have to suffer some will suffer and die a natural death that will have its own effect in a particular way others will be martyred and that has a, a another kind of effect to get things ready that evil powers can then be broken down and the church Extended. It's like the sufferings of the saints, and particularly the deaths of the martyrs. Of the, you know, an hourglass. You turn it upside down, and the sand goes through. And the sand is running through with with every martyrdom, with all the tears and 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 sufferings of of the believers. Something is happening. A Number of years ago, I, I want to so it was fairly soon. I had a wonderful Romanian Baptist pastor, some of you would have heard of him, Dr. Joseph Tsan, T-S-O-N. I heard he was in Charlotte, North Carolina. I invited him to lecture in my classes, and he spoke on the subject of, of a book he had just written entitled The Theology of Martyrdom, The Theology of Martyrdom, Joseph Tson, of Oradia in Romania. and I hadn't planned it. It was an odd happenstance. He was in my class in Charlotte, and then in three days, I would be in Romania preaching in that huge church that he founded. It was a Wednesday night prayer meeting. 4,000 were in attendance. It was a church that had seen many martyrs. Anyway... Dr. Joseph Tson told us about what is also in his book that you could read. He came from, from Romania in a time when Ceaușescu, a very, very brutal dictator, ever a bit as rough as Stalin or Mao or whoever, hated the Christians in particular and did terrible things to them. I often go to Romania and they've told me some of the things they did and I don't even wish to mention it. And so he came to the British Isles down in England somewhere studying and he had a lot of fellowship, I believe, with the Banner of Truth people and he finished his course of studies at wherever it was, I reckon London, and was planning to go back to Romania, which this would have been back in the back in the early 80s when Ceaușescu's government seemed impregnable. And his friends in the British Isles said, don't go back, we can get you a church here. If you go back, you'll almost certainly be killed. Waste your life. If you stay here and minister in, in, in Britain a while, Things might change and you can go back to Romania. Well, he, he felt the pressure very keenly of what to do. He wasn't sure. Who would be? Was it crazy to go back for a well-educated, consecrated person to almost certain persecution, probably death, and waste your life? or Should you wait? So that drove him to the scriptures and he went through the many passages of scripture, particularly the one I quoted, Colossians 1.24, filling up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ. And he came to the conclusion that martyrdom is part of the way of advancing the gospel when it is in God's will and that on the basis of the suffering of the saints and the martyrdom of the believers, evil systems eventually come down, the church is set free, and the gospel spreads. So he went back. He was thrown into prison more than once and I think beaten, but he was was not killed. blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, the suffering of the saints is the advancement of the gospel. Some of you know this wonderful Anglican Archbishop of Uganda, Archbishop Henry O'Rombie. He was. I've heard him speak with us in Carolina and also he was speaking at the 500th anniversary of John Calvin in Geneva, uh, whatever it was, a year and a half ago. I believe there are 16 million Anglicans in Uganda, very evangelical conservative believers, of which Archbishop Henry is, is ahead. And he said that the tremendous growth of evangelical Anglicanism in Uganda he traces it back to fifty young men of the of the noble family, whatever tribe it was they had their own nobility, and fifty of the young men princes were converted to Christ and the king of whatever Uganda was called wanted to force those. Fifty young Christian men, young princes, to commit certain lewd, immoral sexual actions, they refused, they said, "We cannot do this. we belong to Jesus Christ. He requires purity in the body. we can't, and he literally had his henchmen start at one end of the line and killed number one, and will you relent? No, all fifty refused. Fifty were killed in a day of of, of the aristocracy. Henry O'Rombie says the evangelical Christianity in that case Anglicanism in Uganda comes out of the blood of those fifty noble young martyrs. I've sometimes wondered if the massive growth of Christianity in China is related to the Numbers of believers that were persecuted and, and put to death during the Red Guards purge, and both before and after. One of the old Puritans said, and with this I close The prayers of the saints are the beginning of the execution of the predestinated purposes of God. God has a plan. It's in the seven-sealed book. The plan is gradually being worked out. The Lamb is in charge of opening the next stage of the plan. It's in good hands. And yet, He uses the belief, the love, the experience on earth, the suffering and the death of His saints for the further unfolding of the plan and the spreading of the glorious gospel of grace. We have the privilege of joining ourselves in prayer with the holy martyrs above, asking God to do what is necessary to honor the blood of His saints, to bring down wicked and evil powers and to spread the love and the light of the saving gospel. Amen.